morning, Harvest. Good to see you this morning. Great to be back. Um, let me just say a word about the video. So August is Food Bank Month. And again, we love to do these uh, drives through the summer uh, because it really helps out our partner. And uh, so for the month of August, the next three Sundays, uh, today's the 5th, the 12th, 19th, and 26th, you can bring donations, food uh, donations on those days and we're going to have the truck right out in the parking lot so you don't even need to bring the food in this building you're going to put it right in the truck or if you don't want to take it to the truck just leave it behind your vehicle and we're going to have volunteers in the parking lot are just going to pick that food up get it into the truck and literally drive it 80 meters across the street uh, to the food bank and load it right up into their warehouse and uh, so let's do that let's be super generous during this month i'm not really like a super competitive guy Pause for effect. Um, but I really want to beat Conexus. I mean, they were super generous. Uh, Conexus did an awesome job in their food drive, and Pastor Jeff and Pastor Kerry and all those guys, blah, 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 and their food drive thing. So I really want to, like, you know, in Jesus' name, beat them. <laughs> so next week I'll bring their number and we'll set a goal and we'll see what we can do uh, to. Uh... Amen. Let's just. <laughs> Shut that down right there. So Cheryl and I are uh, excited to be back. We had a great break. You had some great preaching here over the last four weeks for sure. And I know you were blessed and filled uh, by uh, that preaching. And uh, we had a, a great time away and feel strong and refreshed for this uh, next season of ministry and whatever God has for us. So I'm going to preach in a few moments. And uh, then uh, we're going to have a family chat at the end of this service. We're not going to be closing with worship, just with a few things that I need to ch uh, chat with us about in light of what's coming up uh, this fall. So here's, uh, here's where I want to start this morning. I want you just to look at the screen. And Cheryl and I did have the opportunity to be in Minnesota for 10 days, and we were beside a lake. I preached for two weeks, but in between that, we had vacation time at a cabin provided by the church. And I want you just to look at the screen and just to be quiet for a moment. restful, right? And you kind of wish that you could be there. And for us, it really was restful because this cabin sitting beside this beautiful, peaceful lake in a quiet part of Minnesota with no Wi-Fi in the cabin and no television provided us with uh, just a needed respite from the busyness uh, of our lives here. And when you look at a picture like that, you just know that peace and rest are something that internal to who we are, we need. And in fact, God set it up this way from the very beginning. In the very first pages of the Bible, we have the creation account. And you see Jesus, uh, God, creating everything that's been created. And then at the end of all of the creation, which he pronounced to be very good, and before sin entered the world, God established a day of rest. He established the Sabbath. In the Ten Commandments, he established that we should keep the Sabbath, that we should find rest on a weekly basis in order to renew our souls, to cease from our daily striving, to stop, to pause, to be quiet, to rest. Now, I can say all of that. But the reality is, if I was to survey each person in the room one by one, each of us would say, that kind of rest seems so elusive. How can I find that? 
And we even have Jesus' words in, in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 11, he says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. That's me. I labor. I'm heavy laden. And many people in the room would say, that part of the verse I get. And then he says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me carry the burden with you. And learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And notice, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I can understand as I look at those verses, I can understand all the words in the verses. I understand them all. And I identify with that front part of it for sure. But I think most of us would say the latter part of that verse, the, the Jesus carrying the burden part, I find that part to be all but impossible. But that's where the challenge is. That as people, we would say that we are tired and we are stretched and we are overwhelmed. That we are beat down by sin and we are, we are burdened by just the daily, regular, normal, quote unquote, normal burdens of life. And even for Christians who have a clear path to rest, come to me, Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says. That's the clear path for those of us who believe the Bible and trust Jesus. Even for us, rest seems so elusive. Yet we have the formula right here. How can we find rest in the midst of the chaos around us? Can we be at peace in our souls even when, this is what's so important, even when we're not sitting beside a serene lake? Can we be at rest How can we find the rest that God wants for us, that God intends for us, that God kind of lays out in front of us and says, you can have this, you can experience this. And we need to get at the causes of why we're not there and, and not just simply treat the symptoms, which we'll talk about in a few moments. Get at the causes of the unsettledness and the fatigue. If anything's going to change, that's essential. So we're in this series, it's just four weeks long through the month of August. It's focused in the book of Hebrews. We're going to talk about four soul-crushing burdens that need to be exposed if we're going to move past them to find the rest that God intends for us, rest for our souls. And this first one we're going to look at today, that's an intro to the entire series, but the first one we're going to look at today is unconquered sin, because if we don't first get at the unconquered sin... We don't deal with this one first, then there's really no sense with the rest of the series. We have to get serious on this point first. So I'm going to uh, turn right to the scriptures. This is uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at 5 through 18. I'll just warn you just before I start reading it, it's thick with theology. And we'll just work through it and explain it as we go. And uh, we'll get some clarity on what the Lord is saying to us today. So this is Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. 
Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Well, underline just in verse 18, if you have your pens out, Notice the key phrase for this message. We think about everything we just read and how we set this all up. He is able to help. He is able to help. We need to take advantage of the help that Jesus is offering us in this passage. If you want to be at rest, and here's where we're going with the message. Jesus is able to help you overcome unconquered sin. And that unconquered sin is the thing that's keeping you from rest. So let's go after this. Let's go after that help. It has to start here. Number one, confess your need. Confess your need. I hope you're sitting here today and you know you have a need. You have a need for Jesus to intervene in your life and to help you live the life that he's laid out for us to live. We need to confess our need. Do you even realize you need help? I mean, several facts are right in front of us here. Let's kind of lay some of these out. Fact number one, you are a sinner. I hope that's not a surprise to anybody here today. I hope you didn't come here thinking that you're like a super perfect person, never having sinned. If you're married, just check in with your spouse. Your spouse will affirm that you are a sinner. If you are a child with your parents, your parents will affirm it. If you are parents with children, your children will affirm that you are sinners. I mean, we just need to be in relationship with someone for like 30 seconds and we can discern that we're all sinners. And that's fact number one. Uh, hopefully uh, we all get that. Fact number two, um, if you're a Christ follower, and I don't assume that everyone here is, but if you're a Christ follower, then fact number two, Christ died for your sins and you are forgiven. That's a really important fact to lock down. And we'll talk a lot more about that. Fact number three, the the daily battle with sin remains. Isn't that true? The daily battle with sin is still there, even if I'm saved by Jesus, even if I have his forgiveness. I still understand that I'm battling with my flesh. I'm battling with the temptations that come from this world. I'm battling with the devil himself over sin in my life. And fact number four, 
that, this is maybe the part you haven't thought about before. Maybe you say, like, all three of those facts I get. Fact number four, that battle with sin is exhausting. And maybe we haven't thought about it before as we start a series on rest. Maybe we haven't thought about the fact that the reason why we're so tired and stressed is because we're not willing to surrender sin to Jesus. And that battle with sin is wearing us down. And so as we begin to work through the verses here, we're going to confess our need. Verse 5, the preacher here, I'm going to refer to him as the preacher because the book of Hebrews is a sermon transcript. If you read it straight, it will take you about 50 minutes, which I believe is the God-ordained length of a sermon because of this. Does that make sense? Of course, it does in my mind anyways. So Hebrews is a sermon. So the preacher here, he tells us in verse 5 that he's about to talk, all this talk about angels. What's he talking about? Well, if you look in the passage just before that, he's talked a lot about angels. And he wants to clarify right now that what I'm going to say next is not about angels. This is about people. This is about us. And so in verses 6 through 8, he quotes from, and there's a lot of Old Testament citations in the book of Hebrews, but he, he quotes here from Psalm 8, and he's describing humanity, and he describes humanity right through. You might read it and go, it sounds like he's talking about Jesus, but then in verse 9, he makes a transition, and for sure in verse 9, he starts talking about Jesus in his humanity as our Savior, in that role as Savior. And so that's kind of like the breakdown through all of this, and where he's driving it is, we have a desperate need for a Savior. We need to confess that need. We need his help because we have this sin problem that needs to be arrested in our lives. And so notice some things in the passage, the question, verses 6 and 7. He starts with this, what is man? What is humanity that you would give any thought to him? I mean, this is a great way to start your prayers with the Lord, even on a daily basis. God, who do I think I am that I would even be able to come to you? Who do I think I am that, that you would do what you did for me, that you would love me, that you would bless me, that you would give me anything? What is man? Who am I? What is my standing before God? And there's really built into this question, there's some shock. That God would care at all for us. And, and, and it's to this that we're to bring our confession because we understand some things about ourselves. This room is filled with rebels and God-haters and, 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 and people who have forgotten God and people who are actively ignoring God. People who have denied Him and... and treated him as nothing. People who have treated God with contempt. People who have betrayed him. I mean, who do we think we are? God, God, what is man that you would think about him at all? And then verse 8, as we kind of keep working through it, lets us know that we don't see everything. We don't yet see everything. We have an incomplete perspective on what God is doing and how the world works and even how our own heart works. We lack knowledge. We lack understanding. And so we need some help on that point as well. 
And then God says, we get this description that the preacher gives us in verse 9 of Jesus as uh, the God-man, as the Savior coming and obligated, verse 9 says, obligated to taste death for everyone. Now that's extreme. The mission of Jesus Christ was to die. That's in the extreme. And you have to ask the question, if that is the extent to which God was willing to go, obviously there was a massive need behind that. God knew we had the need. And so we need to get to the place where we understand that we have the need. No one's given up their life for no reason at all. Particularly the God of the universe. Really the bottom line on all of this is we needed help, but I think you know this already. Help. Most of you... I need somebody help. Not just anybody help. You know I need someone help. So those prophets from the 1960s spoke the word that we need. We need help. And not just any kind of help. We need help from the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of you are here today because you know the struggle with sin. Because you want a solution. Most of you are here today because you're recalibrating after six days of duking it out with the devil in this world in your own flesh. And it wore you out. We're here today because we need it to lift high the name of Jesus Christ and worship with other people. We're here today because we need it, that prayer prayed over us. We're here today because we need it to hear the word of God again spoken over us, to recalibrate, to recenter ourselves, to bring us back because the battle is hard and because we're tired of it. And Jesus wants us to have rest in all of that. You will not find the eternal soul rest or the peace that characterizes the life of those who love Jesus, even in the midst of chaos and conflict, because that's the thing. You can have this rest in the midst of the craziness. But you're not going to get it unless you first confess that you have a need of that help. If you're on your own self-help program, if you think you can manage this all on your own, then none of this, none of what's coming next is going to make sense to you. First, confess your need. And if you're prepared to do that, admit you're a sinner. Admit that you don't have it in you. Acknowledge that Jesus Christ does, that he's going to help you. Then you need to, notice this next, trust his ways. Fully commit yourself to his way, not your own way. And we find out here why we can actually do that. Notice that Jesus was made, verse 10 now, he was made perfect through suffering. Jesus was made perfect through suffering. And he closely identifies with us. I mean, this is one of the most wonderful passages on the incarnation, God becoming flesh, right here in Hebrews 2. And he identifies with us because we have one origin, verse 11 says. He calls us brothers. We're family. He's not ashamed of that. And so he has this declaration, the preacher has this declaration built right into it from Psalm 22. I will put my trust in him. That is my resolve. And because I can trust him, because of all he's done. In fact, back to verse 10, it, 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 the preacher says it was, it was fitting. 
It was fitting for him to be made perfect through suffering. It was right in God's mind. It was the moral thing to do. It was appropriate that Jesus Christ would identify with us as human beings and give his life for us. And again, if God saw a moral obligation in Christ's death, in other words, his, what he did, his sacrifice on the cross, appeased the wrath of God. It satisfied the justice of God. His sacrifice on, on the cross, his blood shed was the covering for our sins. And we'll see that even in more detail later. And if all of that is true, if God saw a moral obligation in Christ giving his life for our sins, then we ought to sense an obligation to receive that gift. But not everyone gets it. Verse 10 makes it clear that this is going to bring many sons to glory, many. His, his sacrifice, his, his death was, was available for all. In, in the sense of Christ giving his life for all, it was an offer made to all. But not all are going to receive it. Verse 10, bringing many sons to glory, not all, but many, not everyone, but many. Not everyone is willing to trust him completely. In fact, there are people in the room today and you have not yet trusted him completely. You've not surrendered your life to him. You've not been baptized as a testimony to your faith in Jesus Christ. You should. You should today. He brings many sons to glory. Those who surrender to God, who express faith, who believe his word, who accept Christ. Is that you? Are you willing to turn your life over to him in that way? Now here's the, here's the challenge with, with it. What does it take to get to this place where I can fully trust him? What, is it, what does it take to fully entrust myself to another? And you can think about this in terms of God or people because it's exactly the same. And some of us have a very difficult time trusting. But it comes down to three very critical words that we use very commonly in our biblical soul care ministry, among our small groups. And in fact, for anybody who's walking with Christ, who wants to be a disciple of Christ, these three words need to define who you are. They need to be uh, the very character of you as a disciple. The three words are this. It'll be familiar to many of you. You need to be authentic. That is to say, no deceit. I'm not lying to God about things. I'm not uh, putting on a front. There's no mask. Okay, I'm authentic. This is the real me. And it's a struggle. And this is what I'm working on. So no deceit. I'm authentic. I'm also transparent. That is to say that I'm actually going to open my life up, not just to God, but to some people. Not, not everybody. Everyone doesn't need to know your story or what you're struggling with, but there are going to be some people in your life with whom you are absolutely transparent. If you're in a marriage, that better, first of all, be your wife or your husband. But you ought to have some close friends and partners in ministry and people you're walking with through the Christian life who you can just open up to and be completely transparent. There better be someone in your life who's like that. Authenticity, transparency, and then the last word is vulnerability. 
And, and there's no doubt that I must make myself vulnerable in the sense that this is a risk. Anytime you're going to talk about trusting God or trusting others, it's a risk. And some of us are very risk averse. Others among us are willing to take the risk and, and, and could just kind of throw it all out there. For some of us, this is going to be a real battle. But I'm telling you, you'll never get to the place of trusting God with this unless you're willing to take that risk and be vulnerable. It takes all three of these things, authenticity, transparency, and vulnerability to get to a place where we can really trust his ways. It has to be first with God and then with other Christians who are committed to the very same things, to overcoming sin in the very same way. And this is a description of what the church is meant to be. The Apostle Paul, in fact, in Galatians chapter 6, he's talking about this and he, and he, and he's, he says in Galatians 6, the very first part of the chapter, he says, bear one another's burdens. Now, very often we see this verse and we want to apply it to, you know, those tough times we go through in our life and we're just in a really bad season or this has happened to someone and we're going to make a meal, we're going to cut their grass, we're going to babysit their kids, we're going to write them a card, we're going to send flowers, whatever we're going to do to encourage people, we see that as the bearing one another's burdens. But if you read Galatians 6, the context is actually not trials, but confession of sin. So when the apostle Paul is saying, bear one another's burdens. What he's saying is help each other out in the overcoming of temptation. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is what it means to be the church. We're supposed to be helping one another with this and we need to trust Christ and one another with that. And even if we agree that we need help, so many of us will stumble on this point. We just can't bring ourselves to the place of not managing it on our own. And that's just our pride getting in the way. We want to be our own help. We may confess to God, but we fail to get the help we need from one another. And we know that sin is stalking us. But we want to manage the temptations on our own. And listen, that is exhausting. And the primary source of our fatigue and our weariness and the fact that we feel so beaten down all the time is because we have failed on this point to trust his ways. There's going to be no rest for you and you will not be living as God intends. You will not enjoy all the blessings he has for you, all the good he wants for you if you do not trust his ways and get his help. So, that leads us nicely into the next point. Believe for better. Believe for better for yourself and for one another. I mean, I wonder if this is the problem that we have. We, we believe that he's already taken care of everything that can hurt us. We believe that Christ died on the sins to, to, to uh, died on the cross to take away, to cleanse us of our sins. We ought to live with that victory. Understanding that on the cross, he died to cleanse me of my sins when he declared it is finished. My past sins, my present sins, my future sins were all completely forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have been placed in heaven, justified before the Lord as a result of his sacrifice for me. I get that. And I claim that. But I also understand that I live with this daily battle over sin. 
that it's a struggle day in and day out to grapple with the reality of how that's all still affecting me. So I believe he's taking care of everything that can really hurt me or lead me down the wrong path. But the reality is I still live with such a defeatist attitude, sometimes thinking that Christ isn't sufficient, though he saved me and placed me where he's placed me and justified. I somehow feel he's not strong enough to sanctify me along the way. And so I live with this defeated attitude. This is never going to change. I've tried everything I can try. I've just resigned myself to the fact that I'm going to go through my entire Christian life fighting over this particular sin issue. And Jesus Christ, who gave us the victory on the cross and placed us in eternity, awaiting our full salvation, Christ, who's powerful enough to do all of that, is powerful enough to give you victory today over whatever sin you're dealing with. Do you believe that? He is. He is. And so we need to believe for better. No more defeatist attitude. We need to get the victory that he's given to us. We can conquer the unconquerable sin. In our own minds, it's unconquerable. But not to Christ. If you claim to be a Christ follower, then your theology, your belief, must match your practice and lifestyle. We don't have a theoretical faith. We have a practical faith that brings about transformation in our lives. We are daily changing increasingly into the image of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has fully conquered sin and death. You have been forgiven and are experiencing new life in Christ. But yes, you can fall back into sin so easily. And the preacher of Hebrews knows this. Ten chapters later in, in Hebrews chapter 12, he's talking about running the race with endurance. And he says, we need to set aside every weight, even those good things in your life that can keep you from following Christ. We need to set aside every weight. And then he says, the sin that clings so closely. If we're going to run with endurance, that's our only hope. We, we have to set aside this sin. Jesus died, and I love the, the paradox here. He died, verse 14, that he might destroy death and the devil. And by doing so, he's able, verse 15, to deliver in an ongoing way, not just that one deliverance that got us salvation in the first place, but in an ongoing way, he's able to deliver all those who were subject to lifelong slavery. He's taken care of everything. He's liberated us. We're no longer slaves to sin. And yet some of us seem to like that slavery. Like Jesus came and took the shackles off of us and they're laying there and we pick them up and put them back on our wrists. We worship him. We say and sing the words that acknowledge how awesome he is and what he's done for us and all these great truths. But you know, we continue to live defeat and we'll walk out of here having had uh, an incredible time to get together in worship in the word, walk out and fall right back into the same sin patterns. Proverbs 26, 11, this is, this is what it is. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. 
I was going to search Google and just find some pictures of dogs eating their vomit and put that up there just to give you the picture. I need you to get the picture. My mom and dad were in the first service, and we had a dog named Ringo. We had him for about a year. He was a German Shepherd a Husky cross. He had a very bad habit as a puppy of going out in the yard and eating grass and then coming into our living room and puking on the carpet. And we'd do this repeatedly. And then after he threw up on the carpet, what would he do? He'd eat it. He'd eat it. You get the picture? Why am I telling you this? Todd, why are you grossing us out? That's the picture we need to get because that's what we're doing when we go back into the same sin. We're doing something we shouldn't do. We're coming in and vomiting it up so that sin is out. And then we're like, oh, that looks great. I'm going to eat that. <laughs> is everybody getting the picture here or do you need to go over it again? You want me to go over it again? I mean, the graphic nature of that should compel us this week to do something about this. I mean, we human beings, we're notorious for knowing what's best for us and then doing the opposite. True? We know what's best for us and we do the exact opposite. Want some examples? Do you want some examples? You're not sure. I get it. How about alcohol? Let's talk about alcohol for a second. Okay, no, no blanket prohibition in the scriptures about alcohol. We're not on that program at all. So if you want to have a beer, have a beer. Not a problem. So, so, we, so, we, you know, so you're drinking alcohol, but then um, every single person on the planet knows that if you drink too much, you make bad decisions. Correct? Every person knows this. You don't need to talk to a cop for five minutes about the nature of most of their arrests that they attend and how many of those are related to alcohol abuse. We know this, and yet we continue to go past just enjoying one beer. We just keep going past that to the point that we're intoxicated, and we're saying things we shouldn't say, and we're treating people in ways we shouldn't treat them, and we're making very poor decisions. We know exactly what we ought to do. Want another example? Smoking. Okay, there's no one on the planet who doesn't realize that cigarettes kill you. They kill you. Okay, this isn't a Christian thing. This isn't a Bible thing. This is just a health thing. Stop being stupid, okay? It's, it's, cigarettes are bad for you. you people pick up the habit and they smoke and they smoke a lifetime and they get cancer and they die. They affect the loved ones around them with their secondhand smoke. We know that it's bad for us. We human beings go to it anyway. We know that 99% of what's on television is crap. We know this. And we park ourselves in front of that thing for hours on end and just let it feed our souls. We know sexuality as Christians. We know that sexuality should be enjoyed and expressed within the parameters that God has set out for us. Monogamous, heterosexual marriage, and yet we regularly look outside of that. And we cave into our weaknesses. You see, our flesh takes us where our minds know we should not go because our wills are too weak to stop it because we have surrendered our spirits to someone other than the Holy Spirit. And as a result, we're exhausted. 
There's no rest for us from this battle. And it becomes, in fact, a self-defeating cycle in our lives. We make poor decisions when we're tired. And those poor decisions lead to even more fatigue. We lack courage when we're tired. Fatigue is never the friend of resisting temptation. When Jesus went off into the wilderness to be tempted, the devil didn't even bother him for 40 days. Oh, I'm going to let him get good and hungry and good and tired, and then I'm going to come after him. Fatigue leads to laziness, leads to temptation, leads to sin. And then we think we're treating the problem and we're really only treating symptoms by medicating the fatigue that we're feeling. And what do we medicate it with? For some people, the drug of choice is food. I'm just going to eat. I'm going to eat. It makes me feel, I just, it comforts me when I eat. Or they go to alcohol or drugs or sex. They treat the symptom, but never the cause. I mean, it's a problem if at the end of your day, you're so spun that the words that come out of your mouth are, I can't wait to get home. I really need a beer. Again, if you drink a beer, I don't care. It's not the, that's not the issue. But if you get to the point where you're saying, I need it, I need a beer. And that's the means by which you're bringing order to your life. Can you see how that's a problem? That's not the place God wants us to go. And that's just treating the symptom and not in a good way. People throw themselves into addictions of all kinds. And yes, for a moment, I will concede that in that moment, that, that, that bottle of beer, that glass of wine, just sitting down to veg in front of the television for an hour or two or whatever it is that you're going to do, I will concede that in the moment, it will bring you some peace and some calm. That's what addictions do. But as soon as that euphoria wears off, as soon as the high is gone, you're back into the same cycle. And it never comes to an end. There's no rest. If Christ has defeated sin and death and the devil, then let's start living like it. Amen? Let's start living like it. Let's get serious about temptation and sin like we never have before. The more you see sin defeated in your life, the more you'll enjoy the rest that God intends for you. But here's the thing. It does not come easily or cheaply. We have to grasp the cost of this. Now track this with me, verse 9, verse 10, verse 18. All of them use the word suffering or suffered. So there's something to that. And as human beings, we're pretty intent on avoiding suffering at all costs. We want the path of least resistance to get what we want out of life. But Jesus went full out into identifying with suffering. Verse 16, he's, he's not talking about coming to help angels. He helps, verse 16 says, he helps the offspring of Abraham. He's coming to help humanity. And we're not easy. We're stubborn. We're rebellious. We're thick-headed. We're angry, we're selfish, we're prideful. God loves us so much. The cost, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. There was no other way except that Jesus would be incarnate, that he would become human. The very act of becoming human began the suffering. 
The fact that, that the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary and, 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 and God was conceived, Christ was conceived in the womb of a human being, that began, that was the point of suffering. Not the Garden of Gethsemane, not the crucifixion, not the persecutions he faced. The suffering began right away as soon as God took on human flesh. He had to be made like his, like his brothers in every way. James 1.13 tells us God cannot be tempted, but man can be. God had never felt temptation in any way until that moment that Christ was conceived in Mary. This was the only way for him to be, this is verse 17 continues, to be able to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation, God's wrath or penalty for sin appeased or satisfied. We talked about this earlier by the suffering of Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the shedding of Jesus' blood and covering our sins. And again, verse 18, he suffered when tempted, but he did not sin. So the suffering was, you look at all of that and you can break it down and see that Jesus' suffering was really under three categories. Suffering just in becoming human, suffering in facing temptation, and suffering in his actual death. It was the whole package. Jesus grasped the cost and was willing to pay that for us. Now, as, as Christ followers, exactly the same for us. The eradication of sin from our lives, we have to understand that this is going to require some suffering on our part. This is a cage match between us and our flesh, us and the world, us and the devil. The end of it, though, is rest for us, peace in our hearts. And what's great, is knowing, what's great is knowing that it is a process and that we have this, verse 17 says, this merciful and faithful high priest who is continually applying the propitiation, the covering of his blood onto our lives. The appeasement of God's wrath continues even as we fail and repent. The application of Christ's blood is constant. So are you willing to grasp the cost of what Christ has done and then say, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to suffer in all of those ways. I know I'm suffering as a human. I know that I'm suffering in the temptation and I know I'm going to suffer in, listen, the crucifying of self. Because I need to crucify myself. I need to be done with me and I need to put on Christ and that's costly. Is it, is it anger in your life? The cost of eradicating that is huge. It's not that there's an incident of anger in your life. That can happen to anyone. But that you're an angry person, that you sin in this way, that you affect the relationships around you, that it's always a slow boil just under the surface of your life. There's something behind that and what causes that internal battle and why you are the way you are and why you haven't let go of it. And that's not going to be easy to get rid of. And you're not going to be able to do that alone. Are you willing to grasp the cost of eradicating that sin from your life? Is it unforgiveness? Somebody hurt you in the past. You can't let go of it. 
And your life is filled with, with bitterness and malice. And, and you're really hoping, you don't ever tell anybody this, but deep inside, you're hoping that God gets them, that they'll pay for this someday. There's going to be a cost. If you want to get rid of that kind of unforgiveness, there's going to be a cost to that. Greed. Do you spend what you don't have? Is your debt skyrocketing? Are you stealing to get things? Are you deceitful? Are you, are you working too much because you just feel like you need more and you need to keep up with someone else and you can never satisfy the hunger for more things? Well, there's going to be a massive cost if you want to get rid of the greed in your life. And a lot of changes are going to have to happen. Is it gossip and slander? Have you destroyed trust and relationships? Have you, have you spoken such hurtful words? How many people are you going to have to go back to and ask forgiveness of? How many times are you going to have to check your tongue and make sure you don't say the thing that you're thinking? How hard is it going to be to keep your heart aligned with Christ so you're not even, even thinking those things anymore? Is it sexual sin? Do you right now have a relationship outside of your marriage or outside of marriage? Are you committing adultery? Are you looking at pornography? What is it? The cost is high to deal with these things. If you're serious about any of this, it's going to take a little suffering to overcome. Suffering in the sense of you have to confess it to Christ and probably to some others. You're going to have to get accountability and advocacy in your life. You're going to have to let some other people in. They're going to have to walk the journey with you. And you're going to experience some grief and grief in the sense that you can't go back to that anymore. So when the, when the pressure is on and it's getting tense and it's not going to be, I'm going back to this old way of dealing with it. I'm going to walk with Christ. And you're going to grieve that for a while that you can't go back to it. And then fourth, you're going to have to develop some spiritual disciplines that are going to help you stay the course. You know, in the garden, Jesus sweat great drops of blood in prayer in advance of the crucifixion. The suffering began early. At that point, he was already taking the sin of the world, your sin and my sin upon himself. And he was facing an intense temptation to a degree that you and I never will. He not only faced our sin, he felt our temptation. He cried out in the garden, my God, my God. And he cried out, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, let it be so. That's the temptation. That's the agony he was going through. That's the cost that he was paying. Every temptation you've ever faced, every temptation you've ever given into, he's experienced. And unless we're willing to suffer with Christ the pain of overcoming temptation, then we won't. We'll just keep giving in. And rest will continue to elude us. You see, I, I want to be at rest. This is the battle. I want to be at rest. But I have these pet sins, and I fight the Holy Spirit for control. And battling God, like we're talking about rest here, but battling God is exhausting, and we're never going to win that battle. 
In fact, if we don't surrender our sin, listen, if we don't surrender our sin to God, then God will surrender us to our sin. He will give us over to our own depravity. He will allow us to wallow in our sin. And then rest will elude us forever. But he's able to help. It's exactly what this passage is about. None of us needs to be there or stay there. He's able to help us with our temptation. Why wouldn't we take his help? Let's pray. Our Father, um, I'm so grateful for uh, the way you speak to us with uh, clarity. And um, I was thinking that as uh, I was working through this passage, that here we are in the middle of the summer, and it might be nice to just have a simple message, but you have uh, put something in front of us today that is uh, pretty much a sucker punch. And Father, I pray that we would hear uh, these words and we would be sober-minded, serious about what you said to us. God, that we wouldn't be complacent at all. We wouldn't have that summertime attitude. But God, that your Holy Spirit would dog us this week about what we've heard. And we would get serious about temptation and sin in our lives. We want the rest that you offer us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.